I invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8. We are going to read a, the, from last week, verses 1. We are going to read through verse 8. I'm a little loud here. Is it just me? And then I'm going to jump to chapter 9, verse 6. And so if you will uh, be prepared to maybe turn the page in your Bible. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, and then chapter 9, verse 6 and following. I'll be reading out the New King James Version. God's Word declares, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. But this I say... He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And we'll Well, once again this morning, there we go. We'll get it figured out. We continue our study that we've introduced last week in chapter 8 and 9 and 10. We are going to um, consider our giving. Last week we looked at the attitude of the churches of Macedonia that Paul describes here as an example for the Corinthians. And we saw that their attitude is very different than what we think of as in terms of a sermon on giving. That rather than a pastor pressuring his people to give, we have people pressuring their pastor to give. Let us give, please let us give. Don't leave us out of this opportunity to participate just because we don't have a lot to give, just because we weren't the first to come to your mind with a lot of resources, we want to participate, even though we are poor, in the extreme poverty that was going on in Jerusalem. Please let us aid others. We find that this spirit did not rest easy on the Macedonians. Uh, Paul uses some terminology here that makes it very evident that they were very concerned about this, um, that they um, implored us in verse 4, with urgency in verse 4. 
um, that they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. And so we find that they were anxious, almost, that they were being left out of something that was a very blessed part of the Christian experience. In fact, so much a blessed part of the Christian experience that on numerous times throughout this passage and into chapter 9, we're going to find Paul describing it as a grace of God. And that's going to be key this morning. We often read and think about the grace of God in reference to our sins. In fact, if you go through most all of the songs in our hymnal in the category grace, which I looked through them this morning, uh, nearly all of them, when it references grace, references the forgiveness of sin. Grace greater than all my sin. Let's just put that one out as an example right there in the title. And so it's always in reference to I was once a sinner, but God's grace has granted me something that I don't deserve. Among the grace of God, though, we need to see its width and breadth and height, its depth, that the grace of God is much more than just granting you favor in spite of your sin. Mercy keeps you from being judged. Grace gives you some benefits, even though you don't deserve them. And in that condition, the grace of God isn't just about overcoming sin, Certainly it's in the face of sin that it works. Um, and that's why Paul in Romans says, you know, if, if sin abounds, grace abounds more, so should I have more sin so that grace can abound more? Well, no. God forbid that. And so when we understand grace, when we really grasp it, we understand that it is a favor that God has merited to us in the face of sin. That sin should prevent it. It should be the blockade to the flow of God's grace in our life but he has overflowed that blockade through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so we come now to this expansion of the idea of grace, that it is God's grace to enable us to overcome what I believe is one of the serious sins that we struggle with and don't ever identify in our culture that prohibits us from serving God. And so Paul talks about this grace that's going to overrun, overflow our sin. And it's going to do so by calling us out of avarice, the love of money, greed, into a state of generosity. And this is the challenge before us. In the midst of understanding grace, we need to understand that it is a gift. It is not something we deserve. In fact, we stand in the way of its operation. Hence, it's God's grace towards us. It is not something that you produce or that you can manufacture or that you can direct. It is God's grace toward us. We either accept it or reject it. It's that simple. And so it is something that God is going to desires for us to have. And it is always a good thing. (laughs) It's a favor. It's a benefit that God wants us to have. And too many in our day are preaching this grace as not grace but a work. And here I want to be very careful to understand the difference between describing giving as a grace and describing giving as a work. When we start coming to giving with an instruction saying that if you're not tithing, there's something wrong, 
and we start laying out these criteria for your giving, and we even investigate to make sure you're giving, and so we have a little envelope so we can check your giving, and we find out what your tax forms are so we can make sure you're giving at least the 10% of, of your net or gross or whatever. And you might think that's absurd, but you would be shocked at how many places do just that. It becomes a work that we are measuring your Christianity by, and that is error. Giving is not a work that you perform. Giving is a grace you've received from God. What is it that is the barrier to that grace is our own greed, our own materialism, our own idea of our need to be comforted in material things and and have a safety net around us, um, call our IRAs and bank accounts and insurance uh, policies, that all of this we trust in, and these get in the way of God's grace, and God's grace has to overflow them. Sometimes what gets in the way is our poverty. Not for any of you in this room, frankly. But it would be very easy for me to go down to Haiti and, and say, we'll take care of all your needs. You guys don't need to give. You don't have anything to give. That would be error. It would be stealing the grace of God from them. By the way, this week I got pictures of their roof. They finally got a camera out there. It wasn't very good pictures. He's going to get a better camera, but I'll have those for you maybe tonight. Some pictures of the roof and uh, on the building out there. Um, but here's an impoverished people, but we're not going to rob them of their grace. Here, Paul says, listen, they instructed me. They're not the ones I went to to tell them about the need, but they heard about it, and they responded. And this is the grace of God at work in their life. And they have received that grace, and out of God's grace, they implored urgently, you let us participate. What a difference. As we want to study this difference out a little more carefully, let's go, Lord, in prayer first. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you now for the chance to consider your grace in our life. Certainly just this one facet of it, but we recognize that it is a representation of the wondrous grace that you've given to us far greater than our need indeed one your grace that overflows our need lord we need this grace in our lives and we pray that we might be recipients willing recipients of it we might take it in hand in awe and wonder of your willingness to grant it to us, that we might serve you and one another in the wonder of your grace. Lord, direct this time that we might understand your word, that we might not only be taught by it, but that we might be changed by it. Not, by because of the, not because of the persuasive words of men, but by the power of your word itself and the working of your spirit within our hearts and minds. Lord, work in us this hour. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well,
We have seen the Macedonians give a great example of this. And again, like last week, we have to back up and say, if you don't have the spirit and the desire of chapter 7 and 6 and 5, going all the way back into 1 Corinthians even, if you do not have this in your life, then your response to sermons on giving is going to be a negative one. Either you're going to cross your arms and say, oh, he just wants more money. You're going to say, this is what church is all about. But, of course, all of you who have been here long enough know that that's not the case. But I'm really concerned about all those out there in the podcast world. Um, It's simply one outworking of the grace of God in our life that if we have fully received and are walking in it in the right spirit, that... This instruction now takes root in our hearts in a very powerful fashion. The example of a people like the Macedonians instructs us and challenges us. And we want both of these this morning. We want to be instructed, but we also want to be challenged. And I would contend that proper instruction in the grace of giving is itself very challenging. Let's look at it here. I want to jump down to verse 8. And to counter what a lot of pastors are doing that I spoke of last week, in verse 8, Paul says, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. And this, I think, is a very important verse in understanding giving as a grace. It is not a commandment of God. Pastor, what are you talking about? It is not a commandment of God. He says, listen, when in terms of giving for this need, Corinthians, I, I'm not giving you, I'm not giving this as a commandment. It is a grace of God. And the commandment of God is that we receive his grace and receive his salvation, that we walk by faith, walk in the spirit, that we do all these things. One of the overflows, one of the evidences, one of the working of God in our life is that he grants us this grace if we will receive it, if we will accept it. And thus it is not a matter of a commandment. But we have wrapped ourselves around giving as a commandment of God, and we have made it a work of men, and we have what has resulted in is men walking around with their thumbs in their lapels going, look at me, or suspenders, bang, bang, what kind of church they're in, look at me, look what I've given. I am doing this great work. I am fulfilling this commandment. Paul says, listen, this is not a commandment that I'm giving you that you have to do this or else. This is a grace you need to receive from God. We're going to be looking next week more at the Corinthian circumstance where they had made a commitment. They had made a financial commitment to Paul. Paul uh, apparently either a number or a percentage or, or we will meet the need. Whatever commitment they made, um, Paul shared that commitment with many others. We're going to study that out more next week. Um, and Paul simply saying, listen, it's time for you to fulfill that commitment and you do need to do that. But in terms of giving like the Macedonians, no, I can't command you to do that. Because as soon as I command that kind of giving, it stops being grace. And what our pastors are doing to our churches in commanding their giving is they have removed it from grace. They have robbed the grace of God in our lives, and now we feel this compulsion compulsion, compulsion to give. And that can be very subtle and very blunt and brazen. 
where we have, uh, and one of the reasons we don't pass an offering plate is that I've been instructed by one who's in glory now, older pastors, like, it's a subtle way of forcing people to give. It's a very subtle means of compulsion because now people feel that they need to put something in the plate when it goes by. And even on that very subtle level, we rob God's grace in people's lives. Because we make it a commandment. We make it an expectation. We make it something that we can, uh, thus says the Lord about. You must give 10% plus this, plus that, plus this. And we go into the Old Testament and we teach tithing and that's error. The fact is, if you really want to tithe Old Testamentally, you're going to have to give about 23 and a third percent. Add them up. There's more than one tithe in the Old Testament. You tithe this, you tithe this, and every three years you tithe that. 23 and a third percent. Sounds like a tax, doesn't it? Isn't that about your tax rate? But we come to the New Testament, we don't find that command. You don't have to give. You don't have to. Nor is giving a work for you to be commended for. When a body of saints give, it is God and is the outflow of his grace upon those people that is to be glorified. If it's done right. If, if a church is putting out high offerings because they're being squeezed and pressured by uh, any, any abundant means that are out there the world uses, and I referenced some of those last week, whether it be a chart or a thermometer or a whatever they've got to raise funds for this, or they create imaginary needs by an unbalanced budget, or they just uh, keep harping on it, pass the plate twice is the old joke, but it happens. Whether it be by faith promise, uh, missions, programs, that is all about raising these funds, um, there are dozens and dozens, hundreds of schemes of men to draw out funds from God's people. I get in the mail multiple times a month uh, invitations from groups that will help me come in. They'll help me come and help build up the building fund, help uh, increase the offerings, help do this and this and this. Yes, I get those kinds of advertisements from companies to help me market a giving program to my people. It's an embarrassment that such companies exist, let alone that they're contacting me. That we would use the ways and wiles of the world to rob churches of grace-giving and replace it with law-giving, with pressure-giving. Paul says, this is not a commandment. This is not a law. This is not something that we go to and we say, we do that. We do that. We do that. 
I give this, I give this. No, rather proper giving within the body of Christ is one of responsiveness to an acceptance of the grace of God. And thus, it begins by me understanding ownership is God's. He has me. I am His. I owe Him everything. My life, my time, my energies, my thoughts. He, I owe Him everything. And if He will grace me with this, that I find means to participate more fully in giving, then the glory goes to him, not by commandment, not by a need, whether imagined or real. And this takes us into chapter 9, what real giving looks like. When we take giving and stop making it a commandment and start making it an act of God's grace in our life, then we can really live out chapter 9. Verse 6 we read earlier. I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And then verse 7. All right, there's a principle. We're going to study that principle when we get to it later on. But it's an introduction into this statement. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. How can I become a cheerful giver, Pastor? When you accept God's grace in giving. What? When you have surrendered your heart to God, I'm yours. You possess me. You are my master. I am your slave. I own nothing. I call nothing mine, but all things yours. Once we have opened that up, now we have an opportunity to purpose in our heart that I will give as much as I am able. And maybe, like the Macedonians, maybe God's grace will blossom in our lives and we'll give more than we're even able. Even in extreme poverty, they're welled up in generosity, it says, but I want you to notice that it was freely willing. In verse 3 of chapter 8, it says they were freely willing. How? Because they had purposed something in their heart that they would accept the full working of God's grace in their life. Once we accept the full working of God's grace in our life, giving, being one of those graces of God, transforms our heart so now our focus is less on our wannas because uh, our wannas are not about us anymore. Our wannas are about God. I want to serve God. I want to please Him. I want to be an instrument of His and people's lives. So Paul says, you, to the extent that you purpose in your heart. How do we purpose in our heart? It's not about an amount. You give, not the amount. It doesn't talk about amount here. 
we often think, well, give as much as you purpose in your heart. It's not what it's saying. Read it carefully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. We put in a dollar sign, an amount figure there. But it's the nature of the giving, not the amount of the giving, that's really being talked about here. You give in accordance to your reception of God's grace. For some of you, for some within the church, for some within Macedonia, for some within Corinth, for some within Desert Hills Baptist Church, God has given you a spiritual gift of giving, a grace that overbounds that we just can sit there and go, wow, and give glory to God. Beyond your natural instincts to give. Remember that my teaching of spiritual gifts is that it's not correlated with your natural inclinations, your natural abilities. Because if it's your strengths and your natural inclinations, then it is not a spiritual gift. It is a human talent, and God doesn't get the glory. God says, I'm glorified in your weaknesses, so I look for spiritual gifts where I am physically weak. And if I am by nature kind of a selfish, you know, Scrooge type, you might be a perfect candidate for the grace Spiritual gift of giving. Really? Yeah, I think you might be a good candidate for that. Where you're weak, God can be strong. Take greedy little misers and turn them into generous givers. That's God's grace. To overcome your sin. Your selfishness. Your weaknesses. But to whatever degree, whether it's that degree of having the gift of giving, we all have opportunity to receive the grace of giving. And it is a grace of God. It's a gift. It's his favor. And we might say, well, how can the giving be a, something I've received? I've received giving? Yes. Because once you understand the concept of spiritual investment... Philippians explains it to us a little bit, other passages as well. You can understand that when God lets you have his grace of giving and you accept that grace, it is certainly to his glory, but it's to your ultimate benefit. Because Paul says, what you've given gives glory to God, but it is also credited to your account. That there is an account book in heaven. That's a frightening thought, isn't it? There's an accounting book in heaven that you can have an influence on here while you're on earth with, with pieces of paper, it's not paper, cloth, and pieces of coin that are stamped with, with hideous images of Freemasonry and other things. You can affect your eternal account by using this ugly stuff Tell me that's not a grace for God to give to you. Once we purpose in our heart that I'm going to give as an act of receiving God's grace in this area so that I don't miss out on opportunity to serve him and, and benefit my fellow believers, uh, I don't, I don't want to lose that privilege 
Then we can fulfill the second half of chapter 9, verse 7. Once we have purpose in our heart to give, not as a law, but as a grace, then the rest of this comes in. We're not going to be grudging. We're not going to do it because we're compulsed to do it, made necessary to do it. All right. I guess those people need it. Not going to be able to have my. What do you guys give up to give? I don't know. Um, ice cream? Not going to have my Sonic this week. Pastor says we need to give this. I want to share with you something. If I ever say you need to give this, slap me. Because I'm wrong. God doesn't need you to give. Our church doesn't need you to give. There is no necessity. And the world thinks that's craziness. And I've seen ministry leaders across our land, back in the day when I was traveling across our land regularly, that bought into Satan's lie that we create a need to get people to give. Shameful. Shameful. We rob our people of God's grace. We give because we have to. Someone's got to pay that guy to preach at us, I mean to us. Someone's got to keep the air conditioning running. Guess we better give. We're not meeting our budget. Wrong. In those conditions, it is time for you not to give because it's not grace. And when we see a spirit of necessity driving our giving, when we see a spirit of begrudging driving or reducing our giving, then we understand that our hearts have not purposed themselves to understand and to respond to the grace of God. When I see churches whose giving drops off because there's no need, um, because uh, and one church in particular had uh, I don't know hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank and had sufficient that they could literally live off the interest of that money, and suddenly the giving of the church dropped to the point that the pastor shared with me, I think it's just me that's giving from the size of our offerings. Because the people had associated giving with need instead of giving with grace. And they robbed themselves. They rejected God's grace. Well, there's no need because the bills are being met. So we don't really need to give anymore. You're right. You don't need to give anymore. But you didn't need to give to begin with. You got to give. You were blessed with the opportunity to give, to express in a monetary form your love for God and and His overflow of His grace in your life, you got to give. You didn't need to give. And that's where giving becomes a cheerful thing. I get to give today. (laughs) I don't sit there and struggle with my wife and say, oh, how much do we have to give this week? 
well, what's 10% of it? Is it gross or is it net? You have made giving a law. And when giving becomes a law, there is never joy in it. It is never done cheerfully. It is done begrudgingly. It has been done by necessity, either by necessity of the need that we're giving to and feel compulsed to respond to, or the need that if I don't do this, well, people think of my Christian life. No, it, it beca- whatever becomes a law, you're robbing grace. I warned you at the beginning of this, this is going to be some radical teaching. I don't know what you thought that meant two weeks ago. You're suddenly going, wow. There's no pressure to give. If you have any pressure in this church to give more than you're cheerful about, let me relieve that pressure immediately. There is none. Zero. Bill, our treasurer, knows that I am disconnected in many ways with the giving of this church in terms of knowing who gives what. I have asked him and uh, keep that very uh, sensitive information. It's sensitive to me because I don't want to know it because I don't want it to influence my ministry. Because I've seen too many men. In fact, I had one man in charge of a parachurch organization say, well, we have to stroke our givers. Really? That's our job? Figure out who gives and how to get more out of them? That was his exact words. We need to stroke our givers to get more from them. Oh, how sad God is at such statements, such attitudes. Let there be no pressure in this church ever to give. That does not mean that we won't come forward and say there's a need, um, because needs are real. And the Macedonians were not approached by a need, but they recognized a need. They said, we don't have a lot, but what we have, we want to help meet that need. And they had this grace upon them that they understood that even in from Roman ideas of poverty, they were poor. But it wasn't comparable to the extent of the famine poverty that was going on in Jerusalem. And I can, and and not only I can, but I want to. I want to participate in this. Let me give. Please, let me give. Let us give. Please, Paul, don't leave us out. How in the world do people give cheerfully? It begins by purposing in our heart that I will treat my giving as not a matter of the law, but as a matter of God's grace. And perhaps the reason our giving is so cheap, Perhaps the reason our giving is so grudgingly, perhaps the reason our giving needs to be drawn out of us by programs and charts and sermons, is because we haven't really understood and accepted the grace of God. 
we're pretty sure we deserve to spend most of our money on ourselves. We deserve it. I worked and earned that money. Right? That's our attitude. I ask you, by whose grace do you have the health to work? By whose grace do you have a job to work at? By whose grace do you have breath this morning? For I assure you, you deserve none of the above. Our just treatment would be eternity in eternal judgment. <laughs> eternity in eternal the lake of fire. All that extends beyond that is the, is the work of God's grace. And we talk about common grace, that he has the rainfall on the just and the unjust. Um, but let's remember, it's God's common grace that we receive. And, and when it rains, we don't thank the meteorologist. He didn't make it rain, folks. God did. And you have the strength to go to work. The physicians didn't make you healthy. God does. And designs our body to do these things. And so when we talk about common grace, and then we have specific graces, and we're down to a specific grace within his uncommon grace, then that grace of giving. But if we don't grasp and really enjoy and accept the fullness of the grace of God in our lives... This grace will be absent. It just won't be there. And our giving won't be cheerful. Rather, we'll look and say, oh, they better, you know, I worked hard for that money. They better use it right. If they don't use it right, I'm not giving it no more. Come on, honestly, how many times have we had that spirit in our heart? If they don't use that right, I ain't giving no more. You haven't given it at all then. You've not given it the first time. Think about it. The grace of giving is a favor God gives us. And I, as your pastor, want to help you discover the fullness of the grace of God. And the worst way for me to do that is to turn grace into law. And I don't want to do that. We lose God's blessing, and that's what we're going to talk about in verse 6. If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. You sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. Um, if we don't accept God's grace, we are the losers. We are. Right? Isn't that true with salvation? If we reject God's grace, um, it doesn't hurt God. If you reject God's grace, it doesn't hurt me. You reject God's grace, it hurts you. And so it is in this grace of giving. You reject God's grace in that area, it's not going to hurt me, it's not going to hurt this ministry, it's not going to hurt God. 
We're not going to flounder. It's going to hurt you. Because you've rejected God's favor. There's always consequences to rejecting God's favor. And so to draw us into grace giving calls upon us really to be recipients first before we're givers, to receive God's grace so that now I can give with fullness. And it's not because, just because there's a need. I respond to needs with giving, sure, but it's not driving my giving. I don't give because of appearances. I don't give because of expectations of others. That I'm not going to give as a legal issue. I want you to discover the wonder of receiving God's favor and exercising spiritual gifts and graces. In Philippians, I referenced it earlier, and I'll close over here this morning. In Philippians chapter 4, great passage historically and horribly abused by a lot of people. It's a thank you note. Verse 10 of chapter 4, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. And as soon as the Philippian church had a chance, this is a Macedonian church, by the way, if you're wondering. This is one of the churches Paul just referenced back there in 2 Corinthians, the Macedonian churches. As soon as they got a chance, they gave. But their care for him preceded their giving to him. They cared about him, but they didn't have a chance to express that. As soon as they had a chance, they took hold of it. But look at Paul's response. I don't really need what you're giving. Here's what he says, verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Philippians, thanks for the gift. I didn't really need it. Because it's okay to be hungry. And I'll still serve the Lord. I've learned to be a base. I'm okay. I'll keep serving God even if I have nothing. Really, I'll do it. I'll work, labor with my hands. I'll do whatever I need. I know how to abound and to suffer need. And here, in this context, is this verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Has nothing to do with accomplishments at work. It has nothing to do with accomplishments in sports. It has nothing to do with all those accomplishments. It's about being able to live on nothing. I can do that. I will serve God in the most dire conditions of known to man. I can still serve him. I can do that. Because Christ can strengthen me. Keep going. Nevertheless, even though I can, you've done well that you shared in my distress. I'm not saying that what you're giving is wrong. I'm just saying that I didn't need it. What you did was right and well. It was good. 
but it wasn't because I needed it and wanted to extort it out of you almost or extract it from you. Paul didn't have a program like that. He says, you've done well in your giving because you did it right. Verse 15. You Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I depart from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving or receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. These guys just never stopped. And again, verse 17, not that I seek the gift. Shame of our pastors that seek the gift. But rather I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. And he describes their offering in the end of verse 18 as a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice well-pleasing to God. And in the context of that comes another verse badly used by people, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I don't need you to give. God's sufficient. And so I didn't invite the gift. I didn't seek it out. You heard that I was in in some struggles, okay, but I'm not seeking the gift. I'm not looking for it. I'm not going to share this great need or this great ambition. At this point, most American institutions called churches or parachurch organizations have no need whatsoever. It's all about their ambitions. Paul says, I'm not seeking the gift. I'm not chasing the dollar. Rather, what this, all this instruction is about is about your fruitfulness. And that I will seek. I'm going to seek a fruitfulness from you for God. And that's not confined just to gold and silver. That's all of God's graces. When we receive God's favor it produces a fruitfulness to God. Whether it be in in evangelizing the lost, discipling Christians, uh, uh, encouraging one another uh, by psalms, hymns, or spiritual songs that our singing becomes a reception of God's grace so that now I can express it to God's glory. And just as we aren't called to extract giving out of people, I'm not sure that we're called to extract singing out of people. If you don't want to smile when you sing, fine, be grumpy. You don't want to sing at all, fine, don't sing at all. You see, it it traverses every part of the Christian experience because we have to understand that the entirety of the Christian experience is grace toward us by God. And if that's not the manner in which we're doing this stuff called worship, then stop doing it. Or it becomes law, and then you take pride in it, and and it's destructive to you instead of constructive to the Savior. Paul says you have a heavenly count, and I want you to have fruit that abounds to that. Brethren, I want 
God's grace to abound in your life. And to recognize, we have to recognize that those things in our life that prevent us from giving cheerfully and giving generously and giving uh, with expectation, begging to give, the things that stop us from that are the kinds of things that grace has always overrun, and that is sin. And God's purposes in grace, that where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And really the challenge today is to let God's grace sweep out the avarice in our lives that we would start begging to give instead of waiting to be begged to give and then giving the minimum requirements. That is a work of God's grace. It is not my work. I can't produce that in you, nor will I try. All I can challenge you is that this is something you must accept from God's loving hand. And the consequences of rejecting it will have an eternal consequence. It'll be eternal. There'll be be a loss for you in heaven. So we want to teach giving in a biblical manner. In a manner of grace, not law. And we'll strive to do that as we press on. And This is a radical statement that we're making today. This is a radical philosophy that runs counter to everything probably many of you have encountered in every church you've ever been at. It's counter to what I have experienced my entire Christian life. Growing up in church as a little squirt. That giving is not a commandment. Or it becomes drudgery. But if giving is a grace, it becomes a joy. And that is what God wants. It is what I desire of our church. That we purpose in our heart I will not give by commandment. I will give by grace.